Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Hello, and welcome to the January 2024 edition of the CNS Journal Club podcast. My name is Katherine Holstein, and I'm a sixth-year neurosurgery resident at the University of Michigan. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled Social Determinants of Health and Associations with Outcomes in Pediatric Patients with Brain Tumors. There has been increasing interest in understanding the effect of healthcare disparities on outcomes in various neurosurgical conditions, and I'm glad to see more data coming out about pediatric diseases specifically. It's an honor today to discuss this article, and I would like to have each guest introduce themselves. First, we are privileged to have the senior author, Dr. Renee Reynolds, on the podcast to discuss her paper. Dr. Reynolds, can you briefly introduce yourself? Yes, hi, good evening, and thank you for having me. As you alluded to, I'm Renee Reynolds. I am a pediatric neurosurgeon at the University at Buffalo in New York, and I'm also the program director there. Fantastic. Next, we have Dr. Nina Maraputi as our guest interviewer. Dr. Maraputi, can you briefly introduce yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Nina Maraputi. I'm one of the pediatric neurosurgeons at University of Michigan and clinical associate professor, and I'm really excited to be here. Finally, we have Dr. Kimberly Huang as the co-chair of the CNS Journal Club podcast, who will be moderating the podcast with me today. Dr. Huang, can you introduce yourself for any of our newer listeners? Hi there, I'm Kimberly Huang. Um, I am at Emory University, where I am a tumor neurosurgeon, and I am looking forward to today's discussion. Great to have everyone. Thank you. Dr. Reynolds, can you please start off by summarizing your paper? It might be helpful for our listeners if you shared with us the definition of social determinants of health, what variables you looked at, and what you found in your analysis. Yeah, and um, before I get started, um, even though I'm representing this patient or paper as the uh, senior author, I do have to give credit to the medical students and the residents who really were the brainchild behind this idea and you know, delved into gathering all the data and putting it together. And I definitely was more of a guide to them than uh, the inception of this um, idea. So I want to make sure they get credit where credit is due. But essentially, as you had alluded to, social determinants of health are becoming more and more a focus of, you know, how it impacts the patient's overall care and outcome. And there have been some great studies to look into isolated social determinants of health, but our main goal was to look at if you have more than one, is there a cumulative effect on that patient-specific outcome? And we chose the patient population of pediatric brain tumors. Social determinants of health are essentially any non-medical factor that may influence health outcomes. And the CDC actually further defines those into five separate categories of which there are multiple different variables people can look at. So um, education, access and quality, healthcare access and quality, neighborhood and economic stability to name a few. The ones that we specifically looked at um, was race, um, public versus private insurance, median household income, and then the distance from the tertiary medical center that the patient lived, um, alluding to that being a factor that may influence their access to care. 
And even though we're really looking at outcomes, the outcomes that we we're primarily um, interested in for the purposes of this paper were, you know, ER visits and missed follow-up appointments. Although I think there's a great deal of information that can still be looked into and gathered about true outcomes, you know, um, their progression-free survival, um, you know, how many times did therapy have to be held for certain challenges versus um, their overall quality of life. There's so many different things that can be looked at. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Maraputi, since you're our guest interviewer, would you like to start off with some questions? Oh, it would be my honor. Um, Dr. Reynolds, your group's paper is so incredibly interesting. Um, your paper presents how the influence of social determinants of health and particularly complex care or subspecialty care can significantly affect outcomes. And it's so important, I think, that this data be presented to support these hypotheses. So I want to applaud you and your group uh, for what you've done with this uh, uh, paper. It's so well presented. Um, and what I want, my, my question is gonna be something that um, kind of encourages the group to highlight what we can do as pediatric neurosurgeons. So I wanna start off by asking you, what do you feel is the one social determinant of health um, that we as pediatric neurosurgery providers should focus on now in order to improve our care of patients immediately or in the short term? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. And, and reflecting on the social determinants of health, there are many factors that we have no capacity to have an influence over. You know, examples include race, median household income, um, those things we can't have any direct impact on. So in reflecting on especially the data that we gathered and the outcomes that we looked for, I think access to care is the biggest area where we can have a positive influence as providers and as healthcare systems. Um, you know, certain things that hospitals may be able to assist with is even having you know, patient navigators, social workers, um, opening conversations amongst those people. And even as providers, when we see patients to your next appointment is at this time, is that going to be a challenge for you to make? Does this work for your schedule? Are there transportation issues that we might be able to assist with? So it's not an easy problem to solve, but I think the lowest hanging fruit of all this is the patient's specific access to care and how we might be able to mitigate that. That is an excellent uh, uh, explanation and an excellent choice. I think there's a lot of hospitals these days um, that are looking to using patient navigators. And I think that's um, an excellent point that you make. And um, your answer really helps us uh, um, encourage hospitals to invest in social workers, because I think um, that is a group that we often lose um, as our, our first line of uh, healthcare providers that uh, gets to go when um, the finances get tough. So thank you for pointing that out. Um, I also want to point out that, um, you know, the role of social determinants of health for pediatric patients is very complex due to the potential complexity of these factors and how those factors affect caregivers. Um, it's not the pediatric patient that necessarily has these social determinants of health, um, um, but rather their parents or their caregivers. And it's a trickle-down effect and um, can be, you know, multiplied in the care of the pediatric patient. So when I was reading your paper, I was really intrigued by finding that the larger tumor volume at initial presentation was associated with the lower income in um, the you know, patient or the patient's family. So this is something that I think um, I wanted to ask you more about. In your opinion, is this more related to limited access to care 
Or do you think that this perhaps could be something that is more related to a lack of trust in a medical system? And, or is it a combination of both? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's probably multifactorial. Um, but I do think that the less resources you have and resources can be defined in so many ways, whether it's time, if you have um, a household that's running with one provider and that provider's working multiple jobs and just doesn't have the physical time to take their loved one to seek medical attention, to logistics such as transportation, um, if they don't have access to a vehicle or public transportation to even get to a center to be evaluated. And then of course, just the um, resources that are necessary to pay for that medical treatment. I think oftentimes there's probably the sense of, well, these common symptoms that generally present in the setting of a brain tumor, whether it's headaches or nausea or you know, a little bit of sleepiness, those often can be explained by other conditions. So I think oftentimes these families are probably thinking or hoping that it's a simple explanation that will resolve on its own. And because of their limited resources and access are pushing out having an evaluation even farther than other people who do have better access and better means to be assessed and evaluated. And that's, I think, the bigger challenge, um, because obviously we all know the earlier we are aware, the earlier we intervene, theoretically, the better the outcomes. Um, so education is huge, you know, um, and, and letting them know where they can be evaluated, what sort of things should be brought in into a physician's attention. Um, you know, we think about mental health and the hotlines that are out there. If you have a concern, please call. Is there the opportunity to even have something similar to that where people can free of charge call in and say, these are my child's symptoms. Is this something I should be concerned about and guided as to whether or not that's something that really should be evaluated further? Great. Thank you so much. Um, so Dr. Reynolds, when I was reading your paper and in your group's paper, um, which was uh, excellent, um, I was just thinking about the cohort that you all had constructed of pediatric brain tumors, which admittedly, you know, there's the N is very small because there's not that many in a single center of you. Um, what do you think the benefits and, and possible detriments are to including all types of pediatric tumors in your analysis? So for example, uh, in diffuse pontine glioma, um, those patients, there's no clear-cut treatment for that. They might have to enroll in a clinical trial. They're traveling to different states. They're participating in quite a bit of care. Whereas for um, other tumors like pilocytic astrocytomas, they could potentially have a curative operation, have much less burden of follow-up and imaging and care. Um, so what's your opinion on including the whole gamut of pediatric tumors into one cohort versus like further splitting it up into separate um, uh, subset analyses? I think that's an excellent question as well. Um, to further clarify, we only included patients who either had biopsy or resection. So it was a proven brain tumor and given DIPG is more of a radiographic diagnosis, they weren't included in the analysis. It's not our routine um, habit to biopsy patients uh, with the exception if they're going on clinical trial elsewhere and they need that molecular analysis. So I don't think the DIPG population necessarily skewed this data, but I think it's an absolutely fantastic uh, question that needs to be looked at further because you're right, you know, people um, primarily in that patient population seek care elsewhere and oftentimes from multiple institutions. So the snapshot we're getting locally is probably not representative of their overall care. But interestingly, um, one of the things that I found interesting in the paper that maybe not many people even honed in upon was that outside of germ cell tumors, no matter what category of social determinants of health you fell into, whether zero, one, two, or three, 
um, the high grade versus low grade versus pathologic diagnosis was pretty equivalent across the board, um, which I was um, not necessarily expecting. You know, we always talk about possible environmental or genetic factors influencing the development of these. And you can further hypothesize that maybe certain patient populations or environmental factors that you're exposed to may raise your risk of um, contracting, well, developing one versus the other. But that really didn't hold true. So despite not separating or accounting for those specifically, it was pretty equally distributed across the board. And I don't believe it personally skewed this specific data set. Thank you. And then as we move forward, because um, I, I hope that we as a group of not just pediatric neurosurgeons, but neurosurgeons in general, will start to think more about social determinants of health. How can we better study the, this problem? And do you have any suggestions for how as a group, maybe the CNS or um, AANS uh, as governing bodies, we could help promote uh, uh, these future studies? Yeah, I think, um, as you mentioned, you know, the numbers are low. So I think um, we gain a lot of advantage by working together and pooling our numbers and seeing what the experiences for patient populations look like across the country. Certainly Buffalo is one snapshot, but in different communities, you may get different data and they may have different needs. And so it might not be um, a one solution applies to all areas uh, type conversation. So I think pooling our resources, um, similar to how we do with hydrocephalus to help better the care that we provide to people will be really useful and beneficial. And I think we as a community probably need to come together and figure out where the biggest areas of opportunity are and maybe even develop things like algorithms that we can easily and freely institute uh, in our brain tumor clinics. You know, as an own introspection to how I care for patients, I go in and I assess their clinical symptoms. I do a neurologic examination. We talk about imaging and the follow-up plan. But um, I know for a fact I'm not frequently asking, you know, is it tough for you to get here? Does this day work for you? You know, our brain tumor clinic is held on one specific day of the month and um, they're given a specific time slot that may not work with their work schedule or the way that they have access to transportation. So I think, you know, certainly social workers and clinical navigators and coordinators help with that, but we should also take some of the responsibility. And I think maybe if it comes from the physician, families will also feel a little bit more comfortable um, reporting things that may be challenging for them. Um, if it's an open conversation and we show that we care and we understand what influence that may have on that child's overall health and outcomes. So I think, you know, again, just looking across the board, pulling the data together and figuring out the low hanging fruit of how we as a surgical community can help bond with these patients first. And then from there, you can grow things bigger. You know, if there's one specific area that we see that really benefits um, putting together certain systems amongst multiple hospital systems that may be able to benefit folks, you know, maybe mobile clinics, um, you know, telehealth was something that was brought up. And, and I think those are all great ideas. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting if we could add something like this to the HCRN or some other like major databases, um, just so we can start studying it as a uh, multi-institution, multi, um, all uh, different uh, locations across the country would be really beneficial. Um, and as far as asking the patients goes, I think um, that's something that not a lot of neurosurgeons do. Dr. Maraputi does it when I've been in clinic with her. She'll ask the families <laughs> more about um, their social situation and things like that. And uh, one of my um, functional uh, neurosurgery attendings who works at the VA is very good about asking patients in the wintertime do you heat your stove with wood or do you like for your house or do you have uh, electricity? Because if I'm going to do back surgery and you're going to have 
uh, lifting restrictions for four to six weeks and you can't cut wood to heat your house during the winter in Michigan, it's just going to be a no-go. Um, so those are all things that I think we can incorporate more into our practice. Um, Dr. Huang, did you have any other questions or any questions in general? Yeah, I, I would have to say I would agree with Dr. Reynolds and Dr. Mapudi that, you know, my practice has um, changed or the questions I, how I interview my patients, because I see mostly adult tumor patients. And even just asking in Georgia, where are you traveling from? Because, you know, our patients and just like the pediatric patients, they have to get adjuvant care afterwards, right? And so, although they may have surgery with me because there may be limited neurosurgical providers, you know, um, depending on the location, often they can be seen closer to home as an adult patient, you know, so that actually actually helps a lot um, to ask them where are they from, how far are they traveling? So yeah, I think um, the more we kind of address those questions up front, the better we can plan for their adjuvant care, probably less so for the pediatric population, because I think the centers are more, you know, um, tertiary care centers, but uh, certainly something that has changed. So, you know, we talked a little bit about solutions, you know, one of them is asking questions and being more inquisitive in our visits, you know, to help um, social determinants of health disparities and those kinds of things. And, you know, in, in my hospital, um, you know, they always bring up telehealth was supposed to be a real solution to kind of help with these missed visits and post-op things and a lot of these follow-up um, visits that we need to have for their adjuvant care, even beyond neurosurgery for radiation oncology and oncology. So in your practice for pediatric brain tumors, or in general, actually for pediatric neurosurgical care, um, I'm always curious how this has been, whether this has been effectively utilized for patients who have uh, you know, multiple social determinants of health. Um, for example, in my practice, actually, a lot of patients don't have reliable access to internet sometimes, or especially if they're older, uh, you know, they don't feel comfortable using the internet or, you know, figuring out the telehealth system. It's a real barrier for them. So I don't know that we've actually been utilizing it um, super effectively. Just kind of curious as to how that's been working out in the pediatric population, maybe both in uh, Buffalo and at Michigan. Yeah, I'd be happy to tackle that first. Um, you know, I think there's certainly an appeal to telehealth and um, it's attractive on many levels. In my experience, when it works well, it works well, and it can be very useful to both you and the patient and uh, can circumvent some of these major challenges that patients can have in terms of transportation or time. I found, however, more likely than not, um, it became a challenge um, and didn't really satisfy what I felt was necessary to thoroughly understand the situation or how the patient was doing. You know, in Buffalo, we treat a very diverse patient population. We treat people from several hours away who live in the Southern tier and have spotty internet access. We have folks who are um, a higher percentage living under the poverty level. So their consistent access to a telephone, um, whether it be a cell phone or even a landline is very uh, intermittent and limited. And, you know, I was having patients when we were in the throes of telehealth because there were no choice that were driving to a spot that provided good internet and uh, cell phone data access. And then, you know, they're in a car and the baby's in the back in the car seat and you're trying to assess them. And it's just, it, it didn't work very well. I think if we can figure out a way to make it more consistent um, and maybe set the expectations for the visit even a little bit better upfront, I would have parents show up for the visit without the child at work, not realizing that they had to actually have access to the child for me to see the incision or attempt a neuro exam. So I think there's a lot of potential, but I also feel like it's um, an imperfect system and uh, there definitely needs to be some improvements for it to be a consistent way 
of assessing patients, at least in my personal experience. I agree. I think that um, the use of um, telehealth um, is particularly affected by social determinants of health, um, both from an access of internet um, to having adequate um, video cameras or telephones to be able to, or video telephones or, you know, the latest iPhone to be able to have um, good viewing. Um, and, you know, much like Dr. Reynolds was uh, um, commenting on, we have a patient population up in the Upper Peninsula, Northern Michigan, and then um, patients that come even from the Metro Detroit area. And their understanding of when to log in, when to access, and when they cannot being able to utilize the a phone to reach them and help them through that process, it takes up a lot of valuable time that can be dedicated to caring for the patient. Um, and so those logistics um, from both an education level, financial level, all of those things uh, play a factor. And I think ultimately it's very hard to really know if you're making the best medical decision without um, seeing the child or um, being able to connect with the parents in person. So it is very imperfect, but when, when patients live very far and you already have a strong relationship with them, I think there's really great utility to use like utilizing uh, telehealth services. Sounds very similar, honestly, to the adult side, very similar challenges <clears throat> that we have. Yeah. I think um, sometimes I wonder if I'm getting more through a telehealth visit than a simple phone call, you know, by the time you're working through their internet access challenges and the connection and trying to get the child to stay still and the video lined up perfectly with whatever you're trying to assess and trying to build a relationship with that child via video versus in person, which I don't think is as easy to establish. Sometimes I oftentimes feel I would have a better assessment of the situation if I did just talk to the parent by telephone in a more controlled, calm environment, getting their perspective. So we all know how valuable the family's input is, they know their child best. So sometimes I wonder if the video is even really necessary. Dr. Reynolds, I have one more question for you. Um, why did you choose pediatric tumor population? Is it just your area of expertise or was there something specific for um, this population of patients in pediatric neurosurgery um, that you felt you would be able to pull certain details of um, inequality or uh, social determinants of health from? Yeah, I, uh, there was a few factors that went into that. I think the first is that these patients generally receive pretty longitudinal care um, that requires multiple follow-up appointments and outcomes are um, obviously something that are very important um, in terms of their overall success of treatment. And so we felt like not only was the, the potential findings um, really something that we would work towards improving the patient's overall health for the future of these patient populations, but the ability to actually make a determination about how they affect them might even be a little bit easier. You know, if you think about the trauma population, once they recover, we don't routinely follow them up or even patients like Chiari, you might be seeing them then once a year and we might not even spend as much time trying to get them back into clinic if they miss an appointment because you make the assumption they're doing well where we really go out of our way to make sure that there's consistent follow-up with the pediatric oncology patients if we can. So I think it was just a multitude of, of those factors. And, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up just as a, a you know, an idea that's probably not going to be of popular, um, you know, uh, thought, but um, 
you know, the access to care issue, as I mentioned earlier, I think is one of the biggest challenges. And so we have people with multiple missed appointments. You start to think about well, why may that be? It's probably partly transportation, but it's probably partly employment as well if they're working during the day. And that's mostly when our clinics are held and they're missing multiple days of work already for therapies and, um, you know, all sorts of other things like their imaging. Um, you know, is there need to be a little bit more ownership on our end of being flexible with those things where we offer more afternoon or evening clinics or maybe weekend clinics where patients might have the capacity to actually follow through with those appointments because it would, from a lifestyle standpoint, met or match in better with what they were able to physically attain. But we're so used to these specific clinic hours when we have our support staff, but maybe the onus falls a little on us to extend those opportunities a bit farther from what we traditionally offer. What are people's thoughts about that? You know, I feel like we're often in the hospital at nights and weekends. So I don't know that for us, it would be, I mean, it's certainly obviously, you know, from, from the provider, um, it'd be additional work, but um, I think that's a really, you know, a, a very valid point. Uh, it's just sort of your, like you mentioned, your support staff and everything that comes in a clinic to help run that. Is that necessary for all visits? I don't know. Um, and the bureaucracy and the infrastructure, you know, sometimes you just need to see a patient, you know, and uh, it's a quick visit and you don't need all of that bureaucracy that they have to go through, right? Um, I do know that uh, as we've expanded our imaging, so, you know, obviously for tumor patients, you need a lot of imaging and it's really helpful if they can do it the day of if they're traveling to see you so that just one visit, you don't have to come back. You know, it's really awful when they have to go one day and then come back and see you another day and travel twice. So as we've expanded our imaging opportunities with our radiologists so that, you know, it's more convenient for patients and they even have now Saturday appointments and those kinds of things, which previously were pretty limited. I think that's helped people a lot with um, access, at least from a, you know, at least at the imaging standpoint of things. So we don't offer, you know, a weekend or nighttime clinics yet, but I think it's a very valid point. I think, you know, as the provider it's, or the nurse surgeon, it's not so hard for us, maybe depending on, you know, that kind of thing. But I think the support staff might have a little bit harder challenge with that. I feel like I've only thought about using a weekend clinics when I'm uh, backed up in my uh, weekday clinics. And I almost feel like uh, it's wrong to be like that, right? I've got to find balance in my life. Um, so I feel this uh, tug uh, this way and then the other way. I want to do this for my patients and this population that I love. However, I also want to take care of myself and my family. And the more time I give in, in that way, um, am I actually losing uh, a part of myself? And will I not be able to provide the optimal care because I'm not taking that self-care as well? So I think it's a really hard balance, but such an incredible and um, um, important point to make. And since you made a potentially unpopular comment about this, I want to throw in one more. And a twist to this, because this is an all-female panel, and um, and reflecting back to what we started with, the definition of social determinants of health, um, do you think, potentially, that the social characteristics or identifying factors of your provider, that is, maybe even female versus male providers or certain um, demeanors of providers, uh, play a role in their outcomes as well? And this is something that has been published in other um, specialties, but is that a social determinant of health? I mean, technically, if you follow what the um, defining term is, it's any non-medical factor. And so who your provider is, is still a non-medical factor. And we haven't looked a lot at that in pediatric neurosurgery or in neurosurgery per se. 
um, mostly because we have a small population of women in neurosurgery. But I would love to hear um, Dr. Reynolds and even Dr. Wong, your thoughts on, on that piece. Yeah, I think um, pediatric neurosurgery might be the perfect place to do that because the numbers actually look far better uh, for female representation, not only um, in terms of providers in pediatric neurosurgery, but also in uh, positions of um, you know excellence, if you will. So uh, you know people who are represented on committees and boards across the country and their involvement. So I think um, it would be something that could be done for sure. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, a topic that's not necessarily easy to talk about or think about, but again, if it's going to have an influence on patient care, what can we learn from it uh, either way? And how can we apply that to the patients that we see in the future? So I think it is definitely the right arena to look at something of that nature. Yeah, I agree. I think the great part, every time I do interviews now for um, resident applicants, I see so many more um, you know, percent, higher percentage of applicants that are female. So I think we are hopefully reaching that critical mass to really have enough power. I People use that term very lo loosely, but, you know, enough power to um, really understand that question. It'll be uh, interesting to see whether or not the trends follow. I always see all these um, new articles coming out rather recently and the controversy they cause about, you know, um, outcomes related to gender. So it'd be interesting to see whether our field um, does follow what has already been published in the general surgery literature um, about having, um, you know, differences in uh, provider's gender um, and the outcomes that patients have. But I would agree with Dr. Miraputi. If we're being uh, technical on the definition of social determinants of health, it's a very unique way to look at that. And I'd honestly had not thought of that as a possible interpretation of, yeah, of those disparities. So that's, that's great. Something yeah. to think about. Yeah, and along those same lines, um, you know, one of the things that we discussed very briefly, but I think is a huge um, void, and I know in my own health system, I fight tooth and nail and have made very little headway, is the support staff, you know, social workers, patient coordinators, clinical coordinators, um, health homes, which we used to have in Buffalo and have fallen to the wayside, and it's because there's no financial support for those things and there's no insurance reimbursement, but those are also non-medical things that may influence a patient's outcome. So looking at does the specific brain tumor program have these aspects as part of their care? How frequently are they touching base with the patients? What are they able to provide in terms of help and assistance with access to care? And then looking at these same factors, missed appointments, um, follow up in the ER, you know, missed um, treatments, uh, things of that nature, I think is also very, very important. And how do we work as a community to advocate universally of the importance of these things uh, in the care of our patients, because it hasn't really been heard, at least in my institution, as loud as I think it needs to be. Well, thank you all so much for that discussion. It was uh, it was fantastic. Um, and thank you again for taking the time to be part of the January edition of the CN Astronaut Club podcast. We're just about reaching time right now. Uh, we hope that this discussion about social determinants of health does spark interest in your own clinical practice and maybe leads to joint efforts to further study them, as we were talking about before. For those interested in learning more about uh, the article that's presented by Dr. Reynolds and her team, um, the full article will be out the January 2024 edition uh, of Neurosurgery for you to read. We'd also like to remind you that this podcast activity is complimentary to all CNS members and is worth 1.5 CME. Thank you so much for listening and please join us next time for the February episode.